0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edmund Davis and joining me this week through Miracle of Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going?
1: Well I am officially Covid-free when I Yay. took the test. <laughs> I <laughs> did this. Thank you. But seeming as I'm not even really leaving my flat other than to do a little walk and remaining social distancing, hopefully I shall remain COVID free and not spread anything through aerosol <laughs> to mm. anyone else. I mean, it's,
0: it's like, you know, when you pass your A levels, isn't it? Like, you're always going to have that B in English literature. <laughs> <laughs> So you'll always be COVID free. That's my understanding. I'm not a virologist. Please, no one listen to me.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, I got a B in my maths GCSE because it was the last year that they allowed maths coursework. And if you basically mm. just said, I'm very aware of how wrong I am, they gave you marks <laughs> for it. So you weren't any better in your numeracy But in terms of grovelling, oh, I aced that, Ed. So I wonder why they took the coursework off. Anyway, how are you?
0: Uh, I'm good. I got C in my GCSE maths. Honestly, the proudest I've ever been of anything I ever achieved (laughs) in my academic career because I was so bad at maths past year nine. Up until that point, I was fine. But like GCSE maths, I was just awful at you know i think i got a u in my like mock for it like it was just so bad i just had such a hard time with it and it really was like you know a bar gets an f Uh, situation where (laughs) I just like studied so hard I barely scraped through and I was like yes I don't have to do this again I don't have to do like you know the sort of remedial maths course that they make you take when you do A-levels because I passed it at GCSE I could say I am proficient at maths (laughs) (laughs) you showed
1: acquired knowledge
0: (laughs) (laughs) although I was annoyed when I got to A-level that I did have to do IT classes because I had taken business studies at GCSE assuming that that counted as IT because <laughs> right, it was loads of loads of spreadsheets and computers and things yeah. like that so they forced me to have to go and do like IT classes when I was fairly proficient at using a computer um but that's neither here that's just a 20-year grudge at this point um <laughs>
1: hey keep nursing it if it's, if it's 20 <laughs> years that's um prime <laughs> for a lifelong vendetta. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, Bos- Bosworth uh, Community College will pay one of these days. I'll get around to it. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. Um I'm the and grudges, but other than that, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm okay. This week, I have ma- I've mainly been watching Eyes Wide Shut this week in terms of like my cultural input, because. Or uh, at the end of last month, I joked, you know, like, obviously we're in December now, and, like, December's the Christmas one, so I joked about, ah, of course, December, the time when everyone watches their favourite Christmas movie, Eyes Wide Shut, every day. Or words to those that, those effects, because uh, it is a Christmas movie. It does take place over the Christmas period and starts with uh, Tom and Nicole going to a great Christmas party at Sydney Pollock's house and all that sort of stuff. And I just thought, wouldn't it be funny if I did this and just didn't acknowledge it and just, like at the end of the month just posted my letterbox profile and it was just nothing but Eyes Wide Shut and just, like, the words, something like, no, you're having a normal one. Um, <laughs> but then on Thursday, I just had, like, a really bad sinus headache and couldn't watch anything, so I, I the, the, uh, the experiment ended up kind of falling apart through no fault of my own, but up, in, up until that point, I was actually quite enjoying it. You know, Eyes Wide Shut is not a Kubrick movie I've put a lot of time into, over the years, like, I only think I'd watched it two or three times compared to some of his other ones, which I watched loads of times. But it's never been one that's kind of really been high on my list. And re-watching it, I thought, was really interesting. And I think this is a, it's an interesting thing, I think, to do for any movie, to just watch it in rapid succession, because you do start, like, noticing things. And each time, if you're trying to think of, like, some, you know, new pithy thing to write on letterbox, you have to kind of, like, think about it. And... I did think it was funny watching it suddenly having certain scenes just kind of really go up in their estimation. Like I loved the uh, opening scene of the party where like Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are both flirting with different people and they're like doing this really good bit of like showing off their superficial charm among people. And just that, you know, in terms of the discussion of that movie when it came out, there was a lot of kind of like speculation about you know what it said about their marriage or whatever like that but that's the part of the movie that when I watch I think I bet this was what it was like for Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman to be married to just constantly be in rooms full of like powerful people they sort of know and having to have these like completely surface level kind of conversations and flirtations with each other I bet there's a lot Of truth to that in how they play those scenes like weirdly it feels like the most authentic part of the movie when they're being their most superficial and i also just fell in love completely with the scene in the middle of the movie where tom cruise has to go to the costume shop in order to kind of get an outfit to go and attend the masked ball that uh, todd field is going to be playing piano at and it's something it's just like a really funny farcical scene that constantly keeps getting stranger and stranger and it's even funnier when you realize that his character is massively stoned basically for that entire middle section of the movie mm. and just imagining being in that situation and trying to maintain your composure when you know an eastern european man is screaming at two japanese businessmen for trying to have sex with his underage daughter and just being like "Yeah, this this would probably be a bad a bad scene Uh, if you'd just had a fight with your wife while both massively stoned
1: there is amazing pictures that are starting to kind of like bubble up through the internet like um there's an instagram account called opening night i think and Mm -hmm. that's mainly film premieres and i think a couple of parties like from the thick of the 90s and it's amazing how like there's really no sort of sense of ceremony about them at all like everyone's mm. just in real kind of like norm core slubby grunge it's just you know it's your average tuesday night it's the you know after work kind of social but still sort of work there'll be a presentation and the number of pictures i've seen of tom cruise in, but basically nicole kidman smoking inside is like a mm-hmm. new thing for me <laughs> <I'm> like, oh <laughs> oh no has this awoken something in me that's <laughs> long lay dormant and i don't think it's far off how their marriage probably was because I think Mm. it was the last film they made together and they got divorced maybe a couple of years later. So I think at the time there was kind of the gossip around it that that kind of overpowered the point of the film. And I think it's only years later that you can see, oh, that's still very much part of it. Like it's no accident that they were cast um, as the Mm. people that they were and (laughs) who they were and how they're represented but it, it's just a strand along with the rest of it now. But you know what? It's it's one of the worst titles of a film ever. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's yeah, just... It's pretty dreadful. Oh, it's real kind of like, cool, so you've graduated film school. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's that 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 part of it has never kind of like sat well with me. It is very much kind of like that. Oh, interesting. But like, that's as far as it gets where you're kind of thinking, oh, that's kind of self-consciously evocative as a yeah. title <laughs> but uh, that's kind of like as far as it goes and the 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 part of the movie that stands out worst for me it was never particularly good but like i really really hate the scene where they're standing naked in front of the mirror and like uh that blue song like they did a bad bad thing is playing on in the background it's just like I don't know, it just feels like the worst possible version of the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like that was the bit that they forced Kubrick to shoot because it would look good in the publicity, but, like, it doesn't really have anything <laughs> to do with anything else that's happening. And every time it got to that, when I was watching it, I was like, this doesn't need to be in <laughs> This doesn't really serve any, massive, any major purpose. But, yeah, also, I think, you know, divorced from the hype around that movie about how long it took to to shoot as well because famously they were (laughs) signed into like a contract that basically said you're you're working on the movie until it's finished and it took like a year and a half of filming it's just really funny like every time there's a minor character in that movie just imagining like they were on call for like months at a time just like imagining their their daughter asking If she can go, if she can watch The Nutcracker like 200 times before Kubrick was satisfied (laughs) and just imagining that everyone else on the movie had as hellish an experience as they clearly had, in uh, it probably uh, was like not insignificantly part of why they got divorced. Mm. So we'll go on to the news for this week. And this is going to be a very news heavy episode. Uh, You know, the main topic is going to be basically about the biggest news story of of the week and, you know, possibly one of the biggest of the, the year, depending on how things end up shaking out. But there were a couple of other notable stories. Uh, I think probably the one that was the most delightful in terms of just the response to it was uh, Elliot Page coming out as trans Elliot Page, the Oscar-nominated star of Juno, more recently the Umbrella Academy, apparently, which uh, I personally felt affronted by. <laughs> that was the thing that all of the news stories about him... Put out that yeah, they left the, the umbrella
1: on Academy. It's like, oh, okay.
0: <laughs> I don't know if that's a reflection that the show is generally popular, or just everyone just straight away was just like went to IMDb. It's like that was the most recent thing he's in. So I guess, yeah. I guess it's the Umbrella Academy star Elliot was, Page.
1: What well, Inception. Like, because mm-hmm. for me, Elliot Page is Hard Candy, right? Like, before Juno, because yeah. that was about the time where I was really going hard in on my Love Film account. And just, yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, so...
0: Hard Candy is the ultimate Love Film film, <laughs> I feel like. That was that's a movie that no one really saw in cinemas that much, but everyone seemed to rent once like Love Film started sending out the discs. Oh, because, for like...
1: sure. And then immediately it sort of was like, that's the best, worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> But yeah, Inception, hello. I mean, I've not watched The Umbrella Academy. I think it's quite a big deal on Netflix, I guess. And that's just what Mm, it's led with now. But I
0: don't know. know. But um, that was uh, a wonderful story. It's always nice when someone, you know, comes out and is allowed to be their full, uh, complete self in public in a way that, you know, trans people often aren't allowed to do. And it's especially good when someone like Elliot Page does it, and you know they lead with an announcement where they say, you know, you know, I'm trans. I, you know, I, I'm choosing to kind of announce this publicly, but I want to draw attention to the kind of discrimination and violence that is uh, that that trans people are met with, and how you know he is you know in a privileged position because of his position as a successful actor to be able to kind of like transition and avoid a lot of the the worst parts of our society. And I, I thought him putting that in his announcement and making it such a prominent part, like it's fully half of the note that he posted, was, uh, I, I firstly found to be like incredibly moving as a like an act of solidarity with yeah. other members of the trans community.
1: I felt that too. And watching everything come in and one of the first times I've actually seen the media respond to an announcement such as this responsibly and compassionately Mm, because, and what I'd often saw on Twitter is people saying like, Oh, who's Elliot page? Like does a Google cries and heart swells, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's good. You know, I mean, I think some outlets could have done better than others, I still don't think there's any reason to dead name when we can lead with a picture of the person Mm. in question and their work, (laughs) which to be fair, yeah,
0: context clues, context
1: clues, (laughs) exactly. And it was really lovely just over the hours of more and more people sort of rolling in and saying like, "Thank you." And Ian McKellen's one made me particularly Mm, misty-eyed, and I hope that Elliot Page feels the the sort of fulfillment and the support of of him being so vulnerable (laughs) and honest and at a time when I mean when has it not been a particularly awful year for the trans community Mm, but but to you know and I think that was it also came on the same day that there was another blow to trans rights in the UK in Ah. terms of puberty blockers saying Mm. that you know trans kids under 16 you know they can't be in their right mind and you know the usual transphobic nonsense so i you know a, a fair few um trans people who are based around the uk who I follow were like oh thank god for Elliot Page <laughs> like welcome mm. <laughs> so yeah i'm it's um an astonishing act of bravery and i think what you said ed in terms of his position as someone who has always been really quite open and used their platform for good like his documentaries which i haven't seen but have been really well received by the people mm. who are depicted in them so i'm just really excited for him and he's going to go from strength to strength because it, the whole world <laughs> is behind him
0: our next story is a little more frivolous <laughs> i think it's fair to say um, there, but there was some casting news in uh, <laughs> oh, projects that uh, i am uh, interested in Theoretically, like maybe these could be good things, but mainly I'm just surprised that they still uh, are going concerns. The, the the main one, I think, was the uh, news that Oscar Isaac has been cast as a solid snake in the long-in-development-hell film version of Metal Gear Solid, the video game series created by Hideo Kojima, which, you know, are some of the most beloved and belittled games in all <laughs> video games, say, uh, series. About a super spy named Solid Snake who gets embroiled in conspiracies that involve, you know, kind of like treason at the highest level of the American government, that involve a lot of cloning. There's a lot of cloning in those (laughs) games. Uh, Lots of uh, giant walking mechs that fire nukes. There's a lot of good stuff in it um, that you could really make a fun, dumb, campy movie out of, I think. But i always find the prospect of a metal gear solid movie to be like weirdly pointless in terms of you know like making a movie out of a video game because like all of the stuff about those games that's really distinctive is the way in which they are actually games like the first game or the first metal gear solid game because it's a franchise that kind of existed before kojima took it over and kind of took it in its in its own weird directions there's a, a battle against a character called Psychomantis, who is a psychic who can predict what you're going to do so you can't hurt him when he's fighting because every time you try and shoot him he just kind of like moves in a different direction and then he starts haunting you by talking about the other games that you have on your memory card <laughs> um,
1: Oh, that's amazing uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh,
0: and then the way you defeat him is by unplugging your controller and putting it in controller port 2 so he can no longer read what you're doing and it's just like that sort of stuff is just so distinctive and so kind of like fourth wall breaking and it's so much a part of what people like love about those games and also what causes a lot of people to say this is just pretentious nonsense why couldn't you just make a cool spy game and you can't and like you could imagine someone doing like psychomantis as a an antagonist or you know like a sub boss in a film version but he would just be a guy with psychic powers <laughs> like that. That to me is why I've always kind of looked at those. And, and it's the same reason why like all the talk, people are talk about making like a Tetris movie, which I understand is, is being made, but like the Tetris movie that's now being made is basically the social network. You know, it's like we're going to make a movie about the legal battles around Tetris. We're going to make <laughs> a movie about falling blocks where it's kind of like you, it, the the story The the mechanics of the game are kind of what make it special. Like, the actual story is this, like, incredibly boilerplate stuff, and it really does feel like the resulting movie would just be like, this is known IP, so we'll make kind of a generic movie out of it. Mm, mm. And the other bit of uh, casting news was that uh, Lenny Henry, Sir Lenny Henry, I should say, Sir Lenny Henry and Peter Mullen uh, have been cast in the Amazon Lord of the Rings series, which uh, is great news. I like both of them. Um, I think they're both fun actors and both good presence but it was just like really weird to see that news and be reminded oh yeah amazon making the lord of the rings series um and then also being reminded that it's set like three thousand years before the events of lord of the rings in like the second age or whatever you know like it's, it's getting deep into tolkien lore and it just kind of made me think why would anyone watch that mm. like i like lord of the rings <laughs> and i like the, the world of of tolkien but like I don't know, I'm not the sort of person who would sit there and read all of the appendices and The Silmarillion. Like, it kind of seems like they're aiming for a audience that's probably smaller than the one they would hope for.
1: Yeah, and I'd feel a little bit... I mean, it comes off the back of the heels of one of the most beloved franchises in cinema of of what's the late... 20th century early 21st um Mm. and I'm not entirely sold on literary adaptations by Amazon I'm mainly thinking of American Gods which Mm. was crying out for an adaptation and then was done pretty badly (laughs) and it's just vast and I don't know I think they're trying to sort of get in on the Mandalorian territory we'll probably see some cute mm. new creatures but you know and and I am a fan of Peter Mullen as well I've not seen a lot of uh Selene's dramatic work but I've heard you know that he's really solid as a theatrical dramatic actor and mm. I really enjoyed uh just as we're mentioning him grounded Louis Theroux's sort of peak lockdown podcast um mm. where he interviewed Lenny Henry. Interesting man. But the thing that sort of made me laugh was uh the, the brilliantly titled um A V Club article that you sent me, Ed, to uh, bring me up to speed on this. Uh Lord of the Rings show says screw it, tosses all of these people in. And they have, like it's it's a huge cast. Like I I can't really you know other than like game of thrones i can't think of another cast that's kind of as big in terms of uh quantity but also in terms of kind of status of career so you've got some big Mm -hmm. names and some people that are the real kind of like oh yeah, what were they on? Oh, and I can sort of hover on the X-ray on Amazon and be like, oh, that person, that person, that person. But in this article, the bit that made me laugh, the series showrunners, J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay said, the world that J.R.R. Tolkien created is epic, diverse, and filled with heart. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I know we're trying to make it better. And I do believe, you know, Tolkien belongs to the fans now. And, um, mm. but, you know, it it. Tolkien's world as he created it is is not diverse and I refer you to the Wikipedia alleged racism section of his page and I know that like there seems to be this sort of push of almost like trying to clean house in various places like Roald Dahl's family made a statement like the Dahl family made a statement sort of being like sorry he said all those really horrendous anti-semitic things um Mm. in like a tiny statement on their website and you're like Okay cool thanks for doing that and that you're not aligning with it but you know there's kind of better late than never but then it's also like ooh but it's good it's good that that a lord of the rings show is going to be more consciously casted cuz the yeah. franchise let's remember very white
0: <laughs> mhm yes very white and as you said you know like you know it's very hard to like look at the lord of the rings books as you know and and the era in which Tolkien lived and like a lot of the prevalent views of that time and say that you know a story about like hordes descending upon a largely white people from the east was not you know possibly coded in some deeply unfortunate ways um that uh know probably still uh uh you know have terrible resonances today so you know trying to take really conscious efforts to be like, yeah, we're going to try and uh, 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 decolonialise <laughs> the fantasy of this series is is probably a step in the right direction. So we'll go on to our main topic this week. And as I said, uh, it's probably going to be, this is probably the biggest news story of, of the year in terms of entertainment. Uh, obviously, there have been other big news stories this year. I um, don't know if anyone heard there was an election. Um, that was pretty big. <laughs> This is not as big as the election, but in terms of the movie industry, it's pretty big. On Thursday, I started seeing uh, a couple of very vague tweets from various uh, reporters and journalists uh, who cover the entertainment industry that were all kind of like, whoa, that, that that was all like the tone. But some of them weren't particularly direct. The most direct one and the one that tended to get the most traction was one from Mike Ryan of Uproxx, who said lol I guess the whole movie industry changes in oh, twenty three 23 more minutes which set off a lot of people including me to kind of make speculation about what the news could be or jokes about it such as uh me saying that I thought they were finally going to announce an Austin Powers and Shrek crossover which I still think would be uh money in the bank get, uh, get to my people Mike Myers uh even if you have to do it in character please please reach out but that wasn't correct obviously The actual news that then came out in a press release from Warner Brothers was their announcement that their entire slate of movies coming out scheduled for 2021 will be debuting on HBO Max the same day that they play in theatres. That includes movies such as the often delayed Dune, Godzilla vs. Kong, Space Jam 2, uh, Matrix (laughs) Matrix 4, In the Heights, and The Many Saints of Newark, The uh, Sopranos prequel which i always kind of assumed was just going to go straight to tv that seems like a weird thing to put out in a movie theater anyway but i digress so these movies that we're all going to be, they're all going to play in theaters what theaters are open but for a month after they play in theaters they will also be available on hbo max if you have an hbo max subscription you don't have to pay a premium cost as uh people had to do for disney where they had to play uh disney plus where they had to play 30 dollars in order to rent mulan even though they already paid for the service and pretty much immediately this kind of sent shockwaves throughout the industry or certainly the the industry of people who write about the movie industry a lot of people being like oh my god this could be the future of movies this could be the end of theater going as as we know it because you know a lot of people probably would say why would i go to watch a movie when i can just Gotta watch this thing in my house for no extra cost, you know, and a lot of those people may never go back to theatre going. So it's a potentially a very seismic thing. But on the other hand, there were a number of people, including uh, Peter Labuzo, writing for Polygon, who talked about the notion that maybe this is just like a panicked response to a very distinctive short-term problem which is that you know movie theaters aren't going to be up and running for a while yet and they're not going to be at full capacity until the vaccine is widely available so you know this makes maybe makes sense in the short term but isn't like a long-term solution for warner brothers so it seemed like this was a a topic (laughs) we should kind of dig into because it's like i say it it could be seismic yeah but you know we don't know if it's like the kind of earthquake that levels the city or the kind of one that, like, knocks a few tiles off the roof at this point. It mm. certainly feels like things have been shaken up. What was your initial response to this news when it broke, Emily?
1: Well, my initial response is that I am all for anything that gives people better access to being able to watch current films and blockbusters, right? Mm-hmm while cinemas are not particularly accessible, and I don't just mean for reasonably sort of able people in the middle of a pandemic, because even in multiplexes, it's not an awful lot of provision for like wheelchairs <laughs> in terms of seats. Yeah. There's just not still in these giant places, because for some reason there's just this idea of like, oh the only tickets we really want are people, you know, it's really topsy turvy. <laughs> So anything that allows people to watch stuff at home, but also I think that cuts down on piracy is really canny Mm -hmm. because before the pandemic, the biggest threat to, well, cinemas and the, the movies, the studios, was piracy. So to have something where for low to no cost, and by no cost I mean probably already included in a package that you're, Subscribe to so free at the point of purchase that means that you're not going to just find a piracy link is good I think all round and that's something where I think cinemas and the studios need to have you know weirdly been dragging their heels on (laughs) for a long time (laughs) and coming down on very small kind of like the amount of time that they've spent on youtube just punishing people for using things in fair use <laughs> mm. because it's somehow easier to kind of go for a person who doesn't believe they're pirating anything because they're not, <laughs> but are very mm. clearly using it, you know? Um so that was my yeah. initial response. It's like reading into it a bit, it's um uh it's just weird how, you know, streaming is nothing new. You know, we've been living in the streaming world for what, about mm, 10-ish years is kind of when I remember Netflix really being a thing. But iPlayer was there a bit before like the idea because it was still like, you know, catch up. It was still the idea that, you know, you weren't necessarily watching stuff live and but to sort of prepare this, I think I do get a little glimmer of panic from it. And I, you know, none of these things are done benevolently for audiences. They're done to try and claw back bucks. And, and also to save face publicly as being responsible, because I think the stock would tank otherwise, right? You know, we've mm. so much of what you and I have discussed this year is, you know, no one was really, you know, pandemic plans are not something that are in insurance documents, which is wild considering that insurance documents tend to go into um, quite, <laughs> quite <a> terrifying <laughs> hypothetical detail. But, you know, the number of people who are apparently of in their position because they are blue sky thinkers or firefighters, just the it's been such a scattergun response from these like mm. business and industry behemoths. And just reading on them, um, it's just even like the BBC um, business um, and Sarnoff is sort of quoted is uh, we know new content is the lifeblood of theatrical exhibition but we have to balance this with the reality that most theatres in the US will likely operate at reduced capacity throughout 2021 that's the chair and chief executive of Warner Media Studios and that this is a unique one-year plan so I think they're trying to present it as look we're just doing what we can in this situation it's not going to carry on but i think it's a sort of pandora's box and that's the fear from the theatrical chains and Mm. and it's this weird kind of like the one disadvantage of not having a kind of the vertical integration you know the vertical synergy because i don't think the studios really own theaters anymore do they
0: no i think i want to say disney own like a hand like a handful of theaters like at their parks yeah but like that would be that would be it like they're not allowed they're not currently allowed to own chains, although the paramount decrees are being overturned in the near future, so who knows <laughs> we might we might start to see more of that,
1: yeah, for sure, right, and I think you know what would have you know what was originally sort of beneficial as an arrangement is like now if they owned them, they'd be much more invested in in keeping sort of cinemas open and again, we wouldn't have to be talking about any of this ed if all of these successful industries were correctly subsidized right Mm -hmm. like no one would be having to make these weird decisions it would just be a case of like oh cool we'll just shut up and and up shop and pay our workers and see you in a bit Cineworld remember which is the biggest chain in the UK is still shut and it's only in the UK for example um, at the moment it's just tier one and tier two areas are allowed to be open so that's actually like a you know percentage off a percentage off kind of what's left in terms of the market and you know i i don't know how early people will have to book because obviously these are big christmas films but they can't pack the cinemas out (laughs) um so i but i think more innovative release patterns and models are a good thing but I don't think that is where this is coming from.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there was a really good interview with Steven Soderbergh in The Daily Beast where he, he was talking about this because it kind of aligns with some of the things he's been talking about in recent years about his problems with theatrical releasing. You know, he... A couple of years ago i think it was around about the release of unsane maybe or yeah. or or maybe it was for high it might have been for high flying bird because he was like talking about why he was like working with streams oh, yeah. yeah and he was talking about how like he felt that the inflexibility of uh nato the north american theater owners not the other one uh they should really think of a different um a different acronym But uh, they are very kind of like strict on when movies can go into like video on demand. You know, they have to if they're playing in theaters, they have to be in theaters for a certain amount of time before they go onto video on demand. And Soderbergh basically said that you know now that analytics are so advanced that you can pretty much tell the afternoon that a movie opens about whether or not it's gonna. Be worth keeping in theaters, and he gave us his example, like Logan Lucky, which is a movie that I really love. I think that's a really wonderful, like, low-key fun heist movie. But that was a movie that didn't do well in theaters for its cost, and it was very apparent very early on that it wasn't going to do that well. And Soderbergh has, has often said that what he would like is literally if there was just a big old button that you could just smash when you know the movie's not going to do that well in theatres totally. so they can go yep. on demand instantly. Yeah. Just to be like, this is not good for the theatres because they're going to have uh, screens that are going to be playing to largely empty, uh, to, to, to like tiny audiences so they could use the space better. People who are going to watch this movie based on the reviews because they're fans of Steven Soderbergh will also pay to rent it. You know, like, it just makes more sense to have something more f- flexible and this this stuff kind of like plays into that, the idea of having a more flexible response to when the movies can play in theaters and when they can go on demand but he also um was very optimistic about theater going in general because on the one hand there's the cultural thing like so many people have grown up with going to the movies as being a thing that they do for fun to go like you go with your family you go on dates you go just because you love movies and you want to go and watch movies and you like the experience of being in a crowd and like even if it's become less and less part of the culture that's still, like, a major thing. Obviously, people go and see big movies. And the other part is the pure economics of it, which, as he said, is, like, there is no... There's no payday quite like a movie that earns, like, a billion dollars worldwide. Like, the if HBO Max are able to juice their subscribers through this scheme, which seems to be, like, one of the main driving factors of it, which is, like, if HBO Max... Are, if, if Warner Brothers are, like... We wants to try and get more people to sign for this service that's had kind of like an anemic, confusing rollout, then telling people, hey, you can watch the big movies at home for $15 a month probably, you know, kind of appeals to them and probably has like a, a decent chance of snagging some new subscribers for them. It's probably still not going to be close to the amount of money they would have made from just putting out The Matrix 4 in theatres. I mean, it's probably more money than they'll get from putting June into theatres because yes. that just doesn't seem like a movie that's gonna make a big profit. But um, that's neither here nor there. Like those those movies feel like they'll be big earners and that they will do well in theaters. So they're the sort of things that you know, they could have held on to for longer. They could have made those twenty twenty-two movies, but clearly their strategy for this in the short term is to say we want to compete with Netflix, we want to compete with disney plus the rollout has so far not gone great because they haven't really had any signature pr- uh, projects to kind of entice people in that you know kind of really get a lot of eyeballs in the way that the mandalorian did for disney plus um and obviously wonder woman 84 coming out at the end of this month was kind of like the first step for them in trying to change that to kind of say hey this is our unique selling point that none of the other streaming services are going to have and you know that could work in the short term but you know the lifeblood of a lot of these studios is making huge amounts of money in theaters and then you know on the back end from selling them like digital rentals selling them on dvd mm. selling them to tv shows tv stations to show them and things like that so it kind of feels and again this goes back to the polygon article it kind of goes back to the idea that this is like a very short-term solution maybe spurred in some ways from the fact that warner brothers or warner media as it is um has recently been taken over by at&t and so it's got a lot oh, of nice. guys who are very into the notion of disruption in charge and maybe people who are not entirely the best people for running a media conglomerate <laughs> but who are very interested in like short-term boosts in the share price which obviously this has done than in the long-term sustainability of you know a movie and tv production studio
1: Yeah, and kind of what I was saying earlier in terms of like, I understand the model, and I think it's been kind of happening very gradually um, for a long time. And this has just accelerated it, which is the majority of multiplexes are just going to become blockbuster hubs. Mm. And by that, I mean not RIP blockbuster, but uh, your big franchise tentpole films, and maybe a few satellite independent arts house cinemas because i do think there'll still be an audience who in the same way that which is where i believe i sit and it's the difference between you know spotify and vinyl it's Mm. like i will possibly you know but maybe the other way around like i'll go and see certain films in the cinema because that experience is still very important to me um which this year has brought into very clear (laughs) clear understanding so that kind of scope and not preferring one over the other but i do think it's kind of um reflective of how people's tastes have changed over time and as we've been deeper and deeper in recession upon recession what people are willing to spend an increasing inflation amount on actually going out to to a film and what they'll pay because you can't just go oh we'll take a punt on this as much Mm. anymore because taking a punt on a film that that costs about 10 or 12 pounds and then also have you how have you got there you're getting a popcorn deal which is you know the big uh, your big coke zero is almost as much as your ticket price you don't really do that because no one has that much disposable cash anymore and particularly when the price of that ticket gets you a subscription to something (laughs) um Mm. so i think as Ed, I think you said uh, not that long ago. One of our recurring themes is the death of the mid-budget movie, and mm-hmm. that streaming has picked up on that now. Streaming has stepped in and said, "Oh, if you got a kind of slightly strange concept, or not sure you're going to find a massive audience if you put it out into the world into cinemas, oh well, you know, people have already already feel like they've got a bargain, and they might take a punt on it." And I do think it's that ah. Um, oh, what is the name of the effect it's escaped me but it's the idea that group decisions that are made often ends up being that no one has the outcome that they want because everyone else is kind of internally thinking oh i want to do this but i won't say because i think other people in the group would rather do something else and i think that happens Mm. so often like I've, i've seen this time and time again me and my flatmate and my boyfriend and my flatmate's girlfriend if we're watching something um, and we're choosing to watch something we kind of go for something that not any of us feel particularly strongly about even though we have very Mm -hmm. similar taste and you end up watching and going yeah that was all right wasn't it yeah that's okay (laughs) which also feels like well nothing lost in a streaming situation so I do think we'll see that more and more and like a film like Knives Out I mean I know they're doing a sequel but I'd be really surprised if that goes to you know the sort of uh big chains in the way that it did before
0: mm, I, I don't know because it's like I guess at that point it would be a franchise so mm-hmm. it could kind of buy itself in maybe for one more installment like if the second film ends up not doing as well then you know it's probably that's it's it's chance lost but, like, I think, yeah, a movie, an original movie makes $160 million in the US or whatever it ended up making. Like, that probably buys you, like, 1,500 screens or something the next time when the sequel rolls out. But maybe not the kind of saturation numbers that you're going to see for the, the, the mega IP franchises.
1: Mm, true.
0: How much is this all Christopher Nolan's fault? Because <laughs> that is kind of, like, the meme that's gone around, isn't it, that... um he is kind of in a uh, great Shakespearean way, you know. He is the man who was so big on saving the theatrical experience, but by forcing so many theatres like reopen to show tenor, but to play it in reduced capacity and having to like pay out of cost for whatever COVID precautions they could, it just like made the situation way worse.
1: I'm not sure I'm um, the most diplomatic. Um, <laughs> when it comes to Nolan uh, given my track record I don't know I think there's a lot of kind of boldness and I do think a lot of this kind of oh we all want to be back in the cinema chat is very well chosen but I honestly think that anyone who's trying to push releases now is trying to mit- I think a, a big part of it is trying to mitigate possible hacking and um and release because even though those things can be shut down quite quickly now like i'm really surprised that that hasn't happened with bond
0: right yeah that someone somewhere has got it on a usb
1: right because it will just be it will be there it will be sitting there and you know some people might you know and and again some i mean this sounds wild but there have been cases in terms of like kidnap and ransom where it's not a person it's the raw materials it's the Mm -hmm. it's the rushes um or the um the just the footage and uh, (laughs) that can be and you know what that's actually like incredibly lucrative (laughs) because these Mm. things can slip through fingers and get sort of ambushed and intervened on on the way and you know the amount of insurance you know can't necessarily cover that if basically someone just deletes all the files oh yeah so yeah naughty 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 christopher nolan yet again
0: so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes with short short recommends which we talk about piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week
1: this week i am recommending Shelley byron and the poison sleeps ep that you can find on um spotify and bandcamp um i am slightly biased in that uh, one of my best friends is Shelley Byron, um, also goes by the name of Oriana Franceschi. She is a Sheffield stalwart and uh, works for the Sheffield Guild. Very cool lady. But if you're a fan of things like Broadcast and Au Revoir Simone, then you are going to absolutely love this EP that was all um, recorded uh, safely uh, under lockdown. Um, Their videos are very cool as well. So that's Shelley Byron and The Poison Sleep. Fantastic.
0: I am going to recommend a series from the aforementioned HBO. It is How To with John Wilson, which just finished its first season uh, the other week. And uh, I think anyone who has been like following criticism recently, particularly as we get into the year-end list season, will see it cropping up on a lot of lists because it is a really special TV show. John Wilson's a comedian who lives in new york and the the show i think is best described i've seen it described several places basically chris marker but funny um chris Marker of course the great french uh, film essayist who would often like create you know these kind of like really interesting films through photo montage and john wilson basically does that he kind of like walks around new york he takes random snatches of footage and kind of assembles them to create this kind of like I said, it's a how-to thing, so, like, each episode will start with him saying, like, oh, this is, I'm going to teach you how to engage in small talk and his narration, which is kind of, like, this Joe Perra-style naif who's kind of trying to navigate the complexities of, of modern life, uh, you know, so he'll use his various footage that he's been taking to kind of make kind of little visual jokes and also to kind of, like, create unusual connections between his words and the ideas being expressed and the visuals, and each episode just takes you in directions that you really won't expect which is the thing that's really delightful about it you know he will start off with this simple thing about you know uh, small talk which then ends up with him having a conversation with a guy in Cancun about you know a personal tragedy that he's recently suffered which ends up being this like incredibly sweet poignant but also really funny thing and that kind of sums up the whole show really for me is it's this show that's really funny but also just gets into these moments of real profundity through its kind of very kind of like straightforward look at these things in life and and the fact that you know it was made in new york in the end towards the end of 2019 in the early months of 2020 being that you know covid eventually impacts it in ways that are really kind of you know kind of moving in a way that uh you know kind of reframes the whole series in a way that's really cool and really interesting so that is how to with john wilson which is on hbo and hbo max here in the us i'm i'm sure it will crop up in the uk at some point uh illicitly or otherwise if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, from Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me.